Greetings, friends. This is Dr. Mark Sharona, and I want to welcome you to The Edge Podcast, where all things theological, psychological, spiritual, and cultural will be explored so that you and I might understand the times and know what to do about them. Enjoy. Greetings, friends. I'm delighted today to have with me Dr. Dale Coulter, who has a rich history in the academic world as a Pentecostal scholar and is now serving at Pentecostal Theological Seminary in uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, was at Regent University in Virginia Beach, and is just one of the most well-respected scholars in Pentecost that I have ever met. And I just value his input and his insight. And we want to talk today about the flow of history from a perspective of Wesley and the holiness movement all through our current emphasis on revival and where things are going. And so, Dr. Dale, I'm delighted that you're with me today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. It's so great to be here with you, Bishop Mark. I really appreciate and respect your ministry. And, you know, we've kind of cultivated a little friendship over the last year or so, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed it and uh, have nothing but immense respect for you. And it's just a wonderful uh, thing for me to be here and have this conversation. Well, I'm honored that you're here. Um, in one of our conversations, I mean, you, you have a tendency to blow my mind. I'm, I'm really amazed at just what you have been able to maintain in, in, in your vast awareness of the breadth of the way things have unfolded, not just in recent history, the last few hundred years, but in, in church history. But obviously, we are both part of a tradition that values the um, the sense of the immediacy of God's presence, uh, what we would call taking God at his word um, in the Pentecostal world with all of its, if that's the original headstream of the current movement, then there are tributaries that come from that. But prior to Pentecost, I, I don't know that we can talk about the Pentecostal revival and what develops from it without going back to its Wesleyan roots and what flows from there. Can you just begin to talk a little bit about how we need to understand and frame a conversation on current reality based on historical reality? Yeah, thank you. That's, that's a great lead in. So <clears throat> when I think about Pentecostalism and its various elements uh, in terms of the global movement, um, for example, that it's nonconformist or disestablishment, um, that it's revivalist, um, that it's pietistic, um, those sorts of elements, that it um, emphasizes holiness um, and uh, encounter. Those kinds of elements were really, many of them were inherited through the holiness movement with the headwaters, if I can use that analogy, um, in uh, the Great Awakening and particularly within Wesleyanism, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, the Methodist, a little holiness club that he and his brother and George Whitfield had. And, you know, out of that holiness club, they, they really wanted to um, bring renewal to the nation, to England. They were all British. And um, Wesley thought that holiness was the way to reform both the church and the nation. This was the mandate, he thought, for Methodism to spread scriptural holiness throughout the land really was the way in which he 
wanted to understand it. And as his theology developed, he fused together two um, streams. One is the kind of pietistic uh, reformation type of Christianity that he encountered when he first um, met the Moravians in a missionary trip to Georgia. And that was the experiential piece that was muted, I would say, um, but suddenly was brought into his conscious mind that um, Christianity is about encounter and that you ought to sense the power and presence of God. And as a result, of that, he developed his understanding of assurance that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And that this internal witness of the Spirit, which is deeply experiential, connecting to our emotions and our desires. And so he fused that stream, that Reformation Protestant stream of encounter with this, what you might call a process, sacramentalism stream that he inherits from um, a group of Anglicans under the name the Caroline Divines, who themselves were fusing together Greek patristic Christianity within a kind of sacramentalism with some influences from Lutheranism and things like that. Um, many of them were there um, with King James and uh, uh, helped to translate portions of the King James Bible, men like Lancelot Andrews or William Laud, who was Archbishop of Canterbury. They were sacramental they were processed, but they emphasized holiness, and they were all emphasizing the cooperation um, with the Spirit in terms of making you like God, this orthodox Greek patristics theme. So Wesley brings those together, revivalism, experiential-driven form of Christianity from um, the pietistic Reformation stream with the process uh, driven, sacramental-driven Christianity from the kind of Greek patristic through Caroline divine stream. And that, that becomes really the center. And he weds that theology to an approach to discipleship, hence the name Methodism. Um, it's, a, it's a particular way of thinking about discipleship through a series of small groups that are interconnected. Connectionalism is really critical. Um, and, and to facilitate these groups like bands, small groups of between five and ten classes, slightly larger groups for discipleship, and then they would go up and, and, and meet in larger levels and society levels. Um, to facilitate this, he needed um, a laity that was on, empowered, and so he really kind of let loose the laity and, and empowered them as a result of this. Now, because he empowered the laity to lead these bands, these small groups, and lead classes that were more like, sun, there wasn't a Sunday school, but think of discipleship classes, things like that. So laity were the drivers of Methodism within the Church of England, because it was a movement within. Um, because of that, um, an interesting thing happened. Women started to feel like God had called them. And um, there was an interesting development that went along with this. One of... Um, Wesley's uh, colleagues, a man by the name of John Fletcher, who himself was trained at Geneva, but came over, became a, an Anglican vicar. He took Wesley's idea of sanctification. So Wesley had this idea that sanctification begins in regeneration at the beginning of the life, but you're pushing toward this moment of encounter called entire sanctification. And in this moment of encounter, 
God comes in, floods your soul, perfect love begins, emerges. It's not that perfect love emerges for the first time. It's that you've been building holy habits. And these holy habits culminate in a moment of encounter, which kind of um, crystallizes them in you and unites them and integrates them in a way that suddenly love comes to govern all that you do. That's what he meant by perfect love, love governing the heart. It wasn't perfection in the sense that you become a perfect human being, you're free from temptation or anything like that. It was, it was when love is completed. So perfect in the sense of love achieving a level of completion um, where it's governing everything. Um, so that was his idea of entire sanctification. John Fletcher takes that and weds it to Pentecost. This experience of entire sanctification is what happens at Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. Um, now, that was interesting because what that did was it fused together the transformation of the person with the empowerment of the person. So you have purity and power being fused together around Pentecost. So the, the power through gift, charismatic gifting, purity through sanctify, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Um, and within this lay movement, women who started experiencing this started pre-testifying, and they started thinking, we... We want to preach. We want to, we're laity, but we want to preach. We want to talk about Jesus. We want to get before these classes. We want to spread the gospel. And there was an interesting letter exchange between Wesley and um, a, a few of them. Um, uh, in fact, one of them was John Fletcher's wife, where she is making an argument from Pentecost and from the gifts that she should be speaking. And so what Wesley finally, it sort of led him to change his position, at least in the sense that he decided that women could receive these extraordinary gifts because after all, Methodism itself was an extraordinary movement within the church. And so if women, if the spirit empowers women through gifts to, to speak and proclaim, there was an extraordinary gift being given to them. And so he sanctioned and authorized and allowed women. So you have the emergence of women preachers within this lay movement. Um, the last thing I, I, I just quickly mentioned here, because I think all of these are critical, um, is that Interestingly enough, for Wesley, um, holiness was not just about holiness of life on the personal level. It also had a social dimension. And there were two aspects of the social dimension for Wesley. Number one, holiness could only be was social in the sense that you needed a community to develop it and cultivate it. This is why this was the purpose of Methodism, to put you into community and bands and classes and all of that so that you could um, cultivate, sorry, cultivate holiness. Um, but then there was a second dimension. As you cultivate holiness within the context of the community, and this was where works of piety emerged, um, you also should exhibit holiness through works of mercy, love of neighbor. So works of piety, love for God, worship, things like that. Works of mercy, love for neighbor. Um, and that was critical for, for how you spread scriptural holiness. Um, Consequently, towards the end of his life, he's so committed to this idea that he writes thoughts on slavery in which he calls for the abolishment of slavery, of the slave trade. And he makes an argument um, on the basis of uh, the dignity of the human person, on the basis of scripture, variety of things that he says in there. One of the last letters, not one, the last letter that um, Wesley wrote was to William Wilberforce, in which he says to William Wilberforce, the young parliamentarian who ends up championing the cause of um, the abolition of the slave trade. 
rid the land of this, rid the land of it. So um, there's this social dimension. So what does Wesley bequeath? What does this Methodist, Methodist movement bequeath? It bequeaths uh, um, an understanding of grace that, where, that is synergistic. We cooperate with grace on this journey. It bequeaths the idea that salvation is a journey. It's a way of faith, a way of holiness, a way of salvation that you move through. He also gave the idea that there's that grace is the operation of the spirit within you. So there are multiple operations. Regenerating grace is the regenerating work, sanctifying grace. And then as Fletcher comes along and connects it to Pentecost, you have this kind of charismatic dimension that's going along with it. He also bequeathed the idea of empowering the laity on this journey of salvation and that and that they can receive these gifts and now suddenly women can function as preachers in the context of this movement they were not formally ordained wesley couldn't really ordain anybody but they were set forth as preachers um the the methodist idea of the lay minister comes out of this um and then that holiness involves a social dimension right so all those sorts of things. One of the, the one thing that Wesley doesn't give the movement, interestingly enough, is this strong sense of disestablishment. And what I mean by that is Wesley was an Anglican to his dying day. He believed in the monarchy. He believed in the Church of England. He was an establishment minister. He was part of the, the religion or the form of Christianity established by the government. He believed in it. Um, but he was faced with a reality, and that is that reality was the American Revolution, quite a tumultuous political event on the world stage when it occurred um, in 1776, the Declaration of Independence and all of that. And Wesley, even though he was a monarchist, he saw the writing on, handwriting on the wall. And at that moment, he took a very large step and he decided he, even though he wasn't a bishop, he was going to ordain people to be bishops over the church in the United States, and hence the Methodist Episcopal Church was born in that context of that necessity. It was born of the fact that, that England had been severed as a motherland from the colonies as the United States became a young nation at that moment, and thus Methodism in the United States was severed and thus became its own denomination. And when it was severed, it became a disestablishment, a form of Christianity that had not been sanctioned or established by the state, um, but was simply a populist form of Christianity. And that idea of an on-the-ground populist Christianity that does not need the state, does not abide by the state, but is nonconformist in that respect is really important. So all of that comes into the 1800s. All of that comes into the 1800s. Um, and starts to take root and begin to permeate and in the United States in this context. And it's in that kind of fertile terrain of Great Awakening revivalism and Wesleyan Methodism that the holiness movement um, begins to emerge. It really emerges out of the Second Great Awakening, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it emerges as a kind of fusion of Wesleyanism with this great awakening revivalism and um, the the early um, significant leaders are people like Charles Finney, um, Asa Mahan, Phoebe Palmer, they're abolitionists right because they take Wesley's idea thoughts against slavery and they're pushing it in um, uh, the U.S. In fact Charles Finney and Asa Mahan 
are some of the first people at Oberlin College. And Oberlin College, from its opening, is a, is a college that welcomes women and welcomes African Americans. So it's integrated. It's got um, racial integration and um, gender integration from the outset. This is all part of the holiness movement. So as the holiness movement grows, you have women coming in and women ministers and women preachers and women evangelists. You have um, the way in which we bring about renewal in the land is through populist-oriented revivalism on the ground, right? We don't do it from above because we don't, we're not establishment. We're, we don't have the reins of political power. No, we, we transform culture from below. It's a from below approach. Revivalism is always a from below approach as opposed to reform, which could be from above, right? You can reform a nation if you can change the laws. Um, and of course, we see that happening. Um, this is exactly what Thomas Cranmer does in the Church of England. He uses the king and the cover of the king to bring Protestantism. It's a top-down reform going on. What Wesley is interested in, invested in, what is what, what Pentecostals and the Holiest Movement inherit is not a top-down approach where you arrest control of the political reins of power, then you change the laws and and then you, you make religion part of the laws and, and, and bring that and impose from above. No, it's a, we, we change at the local level. We change the heart. We transform towns, and cities, and people through bands, and classes. We network. And so this whole idea of networks, in fact, the holiness movement itself was one elaborate network. Um, so that's kind of what gets bequeathed. Now, I've been talking a lot, so let me just stop there and say that those those are the things that Pentecostals inherit without even realizing it. This is so profound. Um, my my my. Um, you know, I've 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 certainly read many of Wesley's sermons. I was enthralled when I read his journal um, and his encounter with the Ravens. What I didn't realize when I, you know, I had always heard the story about the one storm that really rocked his world, but there were many storms that rocked his world on the journey uh, of the ship. And he would talk about how he processed his fears. But what, what I find fascinating, Dr. Dale, is the, the trajectory of things based on what you're sharing that lead us to where we end up in Pentecost 19, at least where, where it's, if we look at reception history, how it ties to Azusa Street, even though obviously it was going on other places. I mean, um, Frank Bartleman had been many places before he arrived at um, Azusa to claim this was, there's a reason why it's here. You had mentioned in a conversation we had that not all the pietists were abolitionists and that there was a sort of divide. Can you talk about that just a minute before we get to Pentecost in light of the fact that this is really needful? I'm, what's the other side of the story amongst the, the non-abolitionists? Well, there's a, there's a number of positions here, I think, that that you start to see happening. Um, what, interestingly enough, early on in Methodism, uh, because of the commitment to um, ending the slave trade and all of that, they had um, in their doctrines and disciplines um, 
statements to the effect that you can't you can't own slaves or anything. But as Methodism took root and began to grow and got connected within the economy of the South, and remember that Methodism takes root in a lot of places where Anglicanism had taken root. Why does Wesley go to Georgia for a mission or in and around Savannah? Well, because the the Car Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, coming down the East Coast, that's all Anglican territory and uh, all British territory. And so it's natural for him to do that. Um, and as that happens, you start to see people buckle on the question of slavery. And even some famous people, George Whitfield starts off uh, against slavery, ends up owning slaves before it's all said and done. Um, and you have Methodists who end up owning slaves. And um, interestingly enough, um, sorry, no worries. It's never happened to me before. Um, I'm really sorry about that. You're fine. You're fine. <laughs> Honestly. Um, all right, let me back up. Uh, I think I know what happened. Um, my phone is keyed to my wife's to the car. My wife got in and turned on the key. That's what happened. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, you get fracturing in Methodism in the, between, let's say, uh, in the early part of the 1800s. Um, and you have the African Methodist Episcopal Church right. coming out of that. And that fracturing occurs in Philadelphia, the North, because as Methodism begins to grow and take root, this issue of slavery keeps sort of haunting it. And um, it's, there are two issues going on here that we need to see. One is slavery, but the other is, how am I going to relate to my African-American brother or sister in Christ? Okay, so it's, it's two things. Um, and those are, those are, we need to think of them separate, because you could be an abolitionist um, and not, and be a racist. Let's just put it that way. Okay. okay. Those are not always commensurate, those positions. Um, and so what we start to see happening is slave balconies being built in Methodist churches. When I lived in Virginia, right. you could go into these older Methodist churches, and I remember one Methodist pastor saying, yeah, that's where the slave balcony was. Um, because slaves were relegated to another part of the church, they couldn't. And the, the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church breaks off in, over a conflict about where you should pray in the church house where you had some Methodists who are African-Americans wanting to pray on the main floor and then being physically moved to, to, to another part of the church and getting tired of this. We can't worship together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So um, that's where you get the, the, the fracture. That fracturing also occurs with the production of the African Methodist Episcopal Church Zion. So by the time you get to the 1830s, you've got um, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the Methodist Episcopal Church, and the African Methodist Episcopal Church Zion. And one of the most famous AME, African Methodist Episcopal Church Zion ministers is Frederick Douglass. He's a lay preacher, obviously very famous orator, um, former slave. And in his, when he writes in his narrative, he writes of his owner as a Methodist. And he, he's, it's, it's in the context of the mistreatment. He said, I, you know, I'd, I'd rather have been owned by someone who was not a Christian right. than someone who had theological justifications to beat me. At least so the person thought. And it's from Frederick Douglass that we get the idea that 
the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus of America are not the same Jesus. Yeah. Right. And so he's he's critiquing Christianity in America because it's not real Christianity because and, and so so there's a part of Methodism that had kind of sold out, had lost its way on the question of slavery, on the question of racism. It had lost its way from what Wesley had tried to set up. Um, and so um, that is certainly there within the movement. And it, it occurs because you've got economic realities. You've got the, the movement into a wealthier standing. So what you could call in bourgeoisiement, becoming middle class, right? Um, and this also goes hand in hand with the way in which um, revivalist elements of religion start to get tamped down. You know, we don't, we don't need that shouting in here. We're a little more, you know, dignified than that kind of thing. So there are a number of elements that are going into this, which create the context for um, the holiness movement as a movement of renewal within Methodism, which itself was a movement of renewal and reform within the Anglican church. Right. Um, it had to be renewed um, because it had gotten caught up. So I think what we can, what we can, begin to see here are things like economic variables, things like um, social, social standing um, in the community. Um, when you begin to get cultural capital and political capital in the community, all of these things begin to contribute to um, a nominalization. We begin to get Christian in name only. We begin to tamp down the encounter elements, those encounter dimensions. And, uh, and revivalism slowly you know, it dies the death of a thousand cuts would be a way of putting it. Um, so that's that's certainly part of the mix. Um, and that's, that's, you know, very quickly, I'll just say two other things here. Within abolitionism, there were two other positions, and these were in conflict with one another. All abolitionists wanted the slaves to be set free, emancipated, but then they were split on what to do with African-Americans once they were emancipated. And there were some like Charles Finney who said, no, we, we have to integrate. We got to integrate, man. That's the only way forward. That's what the church is. And, but then there were others um, who said, no, no, we need, to, uh, we need to move them back to Africa. So there are the whole African colonization movement. Interestingly enough, Abraham Lincoln, that's where he was. He was someone who believed in recolonizing um, right. early on. I mean, it was only toward the end that he realizes we've got to we got to integrate. Uh, he evolves in his own positions um, and, and through uh, the pressures of the time. So we see at least three broad positions. One is slavery is okay, justified, that sort of thing. The other is we need to, we need to abolish slavery, but we need to repatriate, recolonize African Americans into Africa, Liberia, all of that. And the third would be abolitionists who say, no, nah, we got to integrate. And there it's, it's that full integration idea that um, where you, you're tackling not only the issue of slavery, but the issue of race in that idea. And someone like Charles Finney would deny people communion. He said, I'm not going to give it to you if you own slaves or anything like that. You're not going to get it uh, because you can't testify to the Lord Jesus Christ and do this to your brother. These are not compatible positions. What, what, what makes this so compelling is because of what happens then by the time we get to the Pentecostal outpouring. Um, talk a little bit 
unfold the dynamics because for, you know, obviously Parham um, was, was a racist. Um, he, he supported the KKK. There are some early posters of him using the three letters K to, to become almost an, an acronym for the doctrines of the church. Um, Seymour had to sit outside the meetings. He wasn't allowed to end Parham's meetings. He had to sit outside to glean from what Parham was saying. But there does come a point for Seymour in, in Los Angeles where if, I, if my memory serves me well, he contended that the color line was abolished at least for a moment or two because it doesn't, it doesn't remain that way. But comment on that. You, you would know more about that than I Yes, and it's Frank, Frank Bartleman's the one who makes the famous statement um, probably around July 1906, the revival had been going on since April, 1st of April. The color line is washed away in the blood. Um, so you've got to remember when Pentecostalism emerges, it emerges in a Jim Crow America. And um, when you think about Jim Crow America, you've got to recognize that there are several dimensions to this. There's a legal apparatus, first of all, and that legal apparatus varies from state to state because states are making their own laws. But that legal apparatus really is comprised of things like defining what it means to be black. So the whole so-called one drop rule, that if you've got one drop of, of African blood in your ancestry, if your grandfather, you know, is African and you, anybody, everybody else isn't, you're still defined legally as a black person and, and different states do it differently. So you could look you know, you could have very light skin, look white, in fact, and still be defined legally uh, uh, as a black person. Um, so you have that. And Plessy v. Ferguson, the famous case that started to segregate, call, you know, segregate race, uh, um, uh, train cars and things like that. That was, Plessy there was, he looked white. He had to announce that he was black. He went into the white car and says, oh, by the way, I'm black. Um, because they, they didn't know. And that's why you get this legal apparatus. So it defines blackness. It then segregates on the basis of that legal definition of blackness. Then you then a body of laws are built to segregate spaces um, and, and the use of restrooms and water fountains and all those sorts of things, right? And then uh, a third body of laws are connected to segre full segregation relationally, right? You cannot intermarry at all, that it's illegal to do so. So this is a kind of legal apparatus. Now behind that legal apparatus, we have to think it's enforced not just simply by the law, but it's actually enforced by terrorist groups. And this is the rise of the KKK, right? Groups like the KKK, white supremacist groups that are enforcing this by a kind of terrorism where they're lynching, they're burning uh, houses and and all those sorts of things. You know, it's to the point that um, someone like Booker T. Washington, who was seen as a kind of successor to Frederick Douglass, he gives his famous Atlanta Compromise speech in 1895, 
in in Atlanta at a uh, a kind of uh, fair, World's Fair there in Atlanta, where he's basically saying to all these Southern landowners, "Let the black people work for you. We'll we'll do your hard work, and we'll we'll bring economic prosperity to the South, a new South." Right? He's trying to do that. He conf- it's so bad that he confesses. One of the problems is that we're trying to get along, but you as a black man don't even know how to act because you are not sure in whatever place you are what the behavior is required of you in that context because a white person can demand anything of you because that white person is backed by the legal apparatus, backed by um, culture. So it's a legal apparatus, a culture reinforced by groups of vigilantes who are going out. And that's all in the South. When you, this is one of the reasons why um, African-Americans start going out to places like Los Angeles. As you move out of the South, you lose a lot of the legal apparatus. Now it's still in some places like Colorado, but in Los Angeles, you don't have, you could intermarry. You don't, there's not a law against it, but you still have the culture that reinforces Jim Crow. Even if you don't have the laws that reinforce Jim Crow, right? So so that is the reality within which Pentecostals find themselves. And the and these two men, um, Charles Parham, who himself has bought into Jim Crow, believes 100% in segregation and the legal apparatus to back it, and has gone so far as to ally himself in some cases with the KKK, as you mentioned a few moments ago. And then you've got Seymour. Seymour, who was a theologian before he met Parham. And I think it's important to say that. A lot of people tell the tale of Pentecostalism as though Seymour learns everything at the feet of Parham and is so right. such a grateful disciple. Right. But that's just not historically true. Right. Um, Seymour was already a deep Wesleyan theologian before he showed up at the school in Houston which was a temporary Bible school that only lasted a few weeks. And there, as you said, he's, you know, because Parham believes in segregation, you know, Seymour is not allowed to enter the class. Now, here's a man who had been in Cincinnati. And from all accounts, he was connected to Martin Wells Knapp's ministry. Martin Wells Knapp was a former Methodist who turned holiness, who believed in integration. So Seymour had already experienced teaching in integrated settings. Okay, and that and Seymour had already embraced the basic holiness message that when you become sanctified, perfect love begins to govern your life. And that first implication of that is you ought to love your brother and sister. In other words, the the problem of race needs to be broken down by the sanctifying work of the spirit. And when it's when the spirit has done his work, then you you really should live out of that love. Um, so he, he had experienced that in Cincinnati, and he gets to Houston, and now he's got segregation staring him in the face, right, in the figure of Parham. But what he does get from Parham is this idea, which, you know, all holiness people believe that Pentecost was the encounter that brought about entire sanctification. Everybody believed that. What he got from Parham was that the sign of this was speaking in tongues, And the other thing he got from Parham was that Parham accentuated the charismatic dimension, accentuated the charismatic dimension. So the whole purpose of spirit baptism for Charles Parham was this. It was a charismatic work 
the evidenced by the gift of tongues from Paul, the Pauline gift, which Parham interpreted as speaking foreign languages, and that then prepared you for, for end-time mission. That was essentially Parham's theology, right? Charismatic gifting, the gift of speaking other tongues, other human languages, to prepare you for end-time mission. Seymour initially embraced that, goes out to California and starts to preach. Um, and he's initially preaching that sort of message, wedding it within, integrating it within his Wesleyan um, sanctification idea, the Wesleyan sanctification idea that told him the races are united if under this work. Um, so, you know, as you know, the story is, you know, he starts off in a holiness church, he gets put out, then he goes to an African-American home on Bonnie Bray Street. And I think it's really important to know that Pentecost breaks out in the home, the parlor, the living room of an African-American couple. And there were some white folks attending, um, but it's in the home. So, so Pentecostalism comes out, at least in the United States, comes out of the home, of the womb of African-American Christianity, holiness, Christianity. It's being attended by some white, folk, some white folks. This all happens within the first weeks of April. Things start to happen so quickly as people start to get baptized with the Spirit and speak in tongues that they decide to rent, you know, a building. And that's when they go to Azusa Street and rent the, the building that belonged to the African American, the local African Methodist Episcopal Church. It used to belong to the Black Methodist Episcopal, Black Methodist denomination. They rent it. They get it. They get that. Well, they didn't rent it. They, they buy the building. And that then becomes the Azusa Street mission. And it emerges from there. One of the first things before they even open up, we have this story of um, uh, a, a white man witnessing an African-American woman laying hands on a Mexican who was sweeping the floor to prepare for services, and the power of God falls and starts, he gets the baptism in the spirit, right? That integrated, racially integrated atmosphere set the entire tone for it. Um, and it's in that context that you start to see whites, Mexican-Americans, Mexicans, um, and then you start to see Demo Shikarian, the founder of the Full Gospel, his, his, his folks who had immigrated to the United States, they show up and then get baptized in the Spirit. So we've got Eastern European, we've got Western European, we've got, you know, all kinds of folks, right? Um, it, so it's an integrated meeting, and it's integrated in, on all levels. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's integrated in that there's no segregated seating. They're seating, sitting wherever they want. It's integrated in that there's no segregated platform. You know, it's not like uh, whites are in certain seats on the, you know, or blacks are in other seats or, you know, no. It's integrated on the platform. It's integrated in the seating. And Seymour wants a, a leadership that reflects this. So his, the first appointments to the, to the elders who kind of govern the place is an integrated body of men and women, different ethnicities. This is all happening in those months between April and September of 1906. Um, so it's just this sort of amazing kind of groundswell, this movement in the middle of a culture of Jim Crow that we're going to be integrated and we're going to come together. Um, and uh, 
I mean, that's that that's how it starts. This is and Parham's not even there. This is all prior to Parham's arrival. Um, let me throw in a thought. You tell me if 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 it's true or not. Um, one of my acquaintances, he's if he's got to be almost ninety-five years old now, uh, from New Zealand, lives in Vancouver now, suffering macular degeneration. He was a latter rain prophet, um, and his father was a prophet, part of the Independent Assemblies of God, but was present at the at the Azusa revival at some point, and. His name is Ray Bloomfield. Um, and Ray told me that his dad was one of the prophets present during those days and then what followed. And that he amongst many other prophets pro proclaimed a prophetic word do not divide along racial lines at a point where they were going to form denominations. Um, does that resonate with anything that speaks true? Well, I know in those early stages, they're all committed to racial. It, right. They seem to be committed to racial harmony. The first one to try to um, counter that is, of course, Parham. Right. Seymour is excited, wants him to show up. He shows up, and when he sees racial integration, he flips out. Then he says, it's not of God. This revival is, you know, can't be um, of the Spirit because of this. Spirit doesn't do this. Um, it's just one of those powerful lessons of the way in which culture can so shape us that we can't even see the move of God when it's right in front of our face. When we're standing in the middle of the holy place, we denounce it as with Ichabod, with the word Ichabod, which itself to me is a judgment upon us. Yes. That we cannot recognize what's happening, while, even while we're standing in the very place of holiness, um, which is what we see happening with Paul. Um, and that's, that's really the first challenge to this vision that they're trying to articulate. Um, it doesn't really take root. I mean, even though Parham goes across town, tries to set up a rival mission almost immediately, um, but people seem to rally around Seymour. They seem to be with him. Um, and so I'd say between, between 1906 and 1908, you have this, this kind of golden time where they're really trying to live this out um, until it gets, in, it gets attacked several other times with divisions. Um, starting in 1908 and between 1908 and 1912 there's just you know one attack on this vision after another um, but we do see people like Seymour remaining committed to it I mean even to the point that um, he goes to Indian Indianapolis Glenn Cook with Glenn Cook and we know from newspaper accounts they had a little storefront mission there, uh, Pentecostal mission. And the papers come in and that what they don't like is that there's, again, there's, there's touching, there's racial integration. It's one of the things that they point out. You can't, you can't do this. So we know that there are these spots, bright spots that are moving out um, from this. Um, and 
it starts to move out and impact other small churches and impact people. What they have not, what they don't do, what I shouldn't say they don't do, what they try and fail to achieve is the integration of that vision into an organizational and institutional and denominational framework that would facilitate it. Um, they're not able to translate the work of the Spirit in the atmosphere of revival into a kind of institutional and organizational um, shape that would propagate it. And that is the challenge of all revivals. And that's the challenge, I'd say, of every encounter with God. When you get up from the encounter, how are you going to integrate what the encounter has done to you into your life? When the revival fires stop burning, because they're not, they're not going to burn continuously. Right. They're yep. there to initiate um, you know, a, a spark, an initial explosion. How are you going to integrate that into a framework that both honors what it did and, and propagates it to future generations? And that was the race. They were not able to do that on race. Um, yeah. you, see, you see efforts, but they weren't able to achieve it fully. And, and it seems to me when you look at, um, I want to be really careful here, because when you look at the, the racial divide in the major Pentecostal denominations, there are even, at least within certain major Pentecostal denominations, uh, a real determination not to allow African-Americans to be part of them. Is that, is that a fair assessment? I mean, based on the inception of the histories of them? Yes, there are a number of different um, reactions, right, to what is happening at Azusa. Um, so Charles Mason goes out there, Charles Mason, the founder of the Church of God in Christ, um, comes back, spirit, you know, empowered, and uh, has caught the vision of racial integration um, and decides this is the kind of denomination we need to be. And he commits to full integration at all levels, including leadership. And early Church of God in Christ, this is their, this is their commitment. Oh, yeah. And you have white ministers um, and African-American ministers, and they're trying to live together. And there is this group of ministers that are white. That, and there is a debate between Assemblies of God historians and Church of God in Christ historians over this white Church of God in Christ group of ministers, were they connected to Parham or not? I tend to side with the Church of God in Christ uh, historians who say, yeah, they were under Mason in some way. But when the Assemblies of God had their inaugural um, uh, meeting, they, they leave Mason and, and come up under the Assemblies of God. Mason actually speaks there in Hot Springs at the inaugural um, meeting, um, but they they come out and they go with the Assemblies of God that, that gets formed in 1914. And so Mason's early attempt at experimenting with an institutional form of integration ends with these white ministers coming out and going AG. And so that creates a real um, bifurcation uh, between Church of God and Christ and AG um, that leads to some myths like the so-called sisterhood myth, that we're sister denominations, and so we don't really have to integrate 
So there's this whole idea that the Pentecostal movement is integrated in some sort of ideal way, but we're not really meeting together, loving each other, you know, those, sort of, those sorts of things, um, denominationally. Um, and that sort of stays that way. Mason makes another effort to try to um, integrate, but um, in the South, because Jim Crow laws meant that whites and blacks couldn't even meet in the same building, that created tremendous cultural pressures. We do have examples of people getting beaten yes. um, for these uh, because of these pressures. Um, uh, uh, Mason certainly traveled around with uh, white ministers, but this was deeply frowned on in the South and you had to, you had to be very careful about this. Um, and uh, so that eventually white ministers in the Church of God in Christ in the second phase of Mason's experiment wanted to, hey, we need our, we need our, our own wing here. So he created a kind of white wing um, under, you know, a, they're a bishop, that sort of thing. Um, again, trying to integrate at the denominational level leadership, but recognizing also the reality of Jim Crow and what it was doing and that sort of thing. So you get this experimentation. My denomination, Church of God, um, you know, we had African-Americans or Bahamians come in in Florida shortly after we became a Pentecostal denomination. Um, A.J. Thomason goes to goes to a holiness camp meeting, preaches, and we have um, uh, some Bahamians come in, and um, Edmund Barr and his wife, Rebecca, they become our first missionaries to the Bahamas. But they, most of the, um, I'll call them black churches, because it's Caribbean, it's African-American, it's a mix in Florida. You know, you're, you're in Florida. Um, um, most of our black churches are established by Edmund and Rebecca Barr, but because of the reality of Jim Crow, um, they create, again, a kind of separate black diocese under a black bishop. So there's not full integration going on here. There, you get some local churches that are trying to integrate, but they're not really able to achieve it. Um, so if you were to uh, look at the Pentecostal movement as a whole, let's say from 1906 to 1950, um, you would say that it was really a a failed effort as a movement to try to integrate fully. And it ended up not really integrating. And the ultimate example of that is when the, um, uh, they create the uh, North American Pentecostal uh, Fellowship. It's a white only body. It's a white only body. Um, and that's created after these white Pentecostals join the National Association of Evangelicals when it's first created. Um, so, I mean, that kind of tells the story um, of how uh, Pentecostals, the, the vision is there, but their efforts to try and integrate it in the in, at the local level and at the denominational level, but those efforts ultimately don't succeed. And um, so, I mean, that's where, that's where those denominations are left. There are some bright spots I'll, I can talk about in a minute, but I just want to stop there for now. Yeah. I, um... As a result of all that, and I would like to hear about the bright spots. Um, I would argue that here we are in 2021 and 
we still haven't made quite the kind of progress that I think we need to make. Um, and it becomes painfully evident, even at a local level, when the residue of those cultural, deeply embedded cultural beliefs at an unconscious level, I would argue, if I were to take a depth psychological approach of a Carl Jung, that they, they become part of a collective unconscious that govern behavior in a way that is unbecoming of Christ. But, you know, if we fast forward for a moment and, and give me um, a diagnosis of where we are and then show and then take me back to the bright spots and ask and 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 take us then what might be a remedy how do we move forward now in light of all that if, if you can well you know the the constant temptation of uh within christianity is well it it's you know when success you know, it becomes the mechanism of your downfall, right? Um, and the, the temptation is when you, when you grow so large that you become economically prosperous and suddenly you start to see that you can get political capital, suddenly you start to see that you can get cultural capital, um, you start to rely on those sorts of things. And this is how the culture begins to dominate um and seep in to how you're thinking about things um because you and this is where you begin to without even fully realizing it wed together protection of american values so-called with christian values um and sometimes you need a frederick Douglass to come along and say you know what those are not always one and the same i'm sorry but they're not always one and the same and you can't see it because you're 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 in this quest for uh, you know, to be taken seriously, to be accepted, to be, you know, in the same quest that happens on an individual level now happens at an institutional level, where institutions and people want to be accepted. I mean, Pentecostals, when the National Association of Evangelicals uh, extended a hand, they thought, wow, you know, we, we were called, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, we were being told that, you know, this was of the devil, and now the people who are telling, who were telling us this, suddenly have extended their hand. Um, so um, we've arrived in a sense. And so there's that constant temptation that's always there that keeps you from saying what needs to be said sometimes, prophetically speaking, or from doing what needs to be done in terms of holiness and, and what holiness means. Um, and even... And here's here's one of the challenges I think we have we see today. Even the very um, the very task of prophecy and the prophetic gets corrupted. It does. So that we, you know, and we see that in the life of the nation of Israel, where you have the prophets who are prophesying to support the king, you know, and and suddenly God brings in a a, a sheep herder or something raises up. An Amos or something, yeah, to come in and say, I'm sorry, but the prophets in the court are not right. They're, they're telling you what you want to hear. Um, and I'm coming out here from the field to tell you. So, 
that ethos is is really within Pentecostalism, but suddenly we've got we've gotten to the point now where we are we are in a dangerous place, it seems to me, in the way that Methodism got so big and grew so large that it became wealthy and fat off the land. And as a result, it embraced all the values of the land. And now we've grown fat and wealthy off the land. And now we find ourselves embracing some of these values that are actually corrupting um, the prophetic, corrupting the message of Pentecost um, and keeping us from fully integrating racially. Uh, and when I say full integration, I mean we integrate in our churches, we integrate on our platforms, and we integrate ultimately in our leadership where we share power. Because God, because what puts somebody in power is not their skin color, it's not their socioeconomic standing, it is the charismatic gifting of the spirit discerned by the body that puts that person where he or she is. 